Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and fellow video essayist Tom Vanderlinden from the channel Like Stories of Old. We seek to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're talking about adaptation written by Charlie Kaufman and directed by Spike Jones. Tom, what do you think makes this an interesting movie to revisit and talk about? Yeah, you're saying revisit and... Indeed, it's been a movie that I hadn't seen in maybe 10 years or something. I'd only seen it once, a bit later, I think, than everyone else. It's a movie that I discovered quite late in my own exploration of cinema. But I think at the time I'd already seen some other Charlie Kaufman films, or at least movies that were written by him. I was already a bit familiar with his style of writing and I think even some of his directing at, the, at that point. But yeah, it's an interesting movie that I think, at the time at least, was one of the first to really break down the kind of disconnect between stories and reality and the way we try to fit stories into certain structures that we don't necessarily find in our real lives and the question of why we do that. And I think it's also a very sobering look at... Hollywood screenwriting and I think we have a tendency to look up to a lot of Hollywood people or at least screenwriters and we think like oh they must be like these almost magical creatures filled with ideas who are (laughs) working like every day like around the clock they're oozing creativity and then I like the way this movie kind of portrays a more relatable uh, image because we get a lot of stream of consciousness narration which I thought was really funny and still is quite relatable and so yeah, that, that I think is an interesting kind of starting point from which to explore this movie and from which to yeah. still appreciate it today. It's interesting because it's it's a very meta film. I mean, to give a quick overview, I'm sure hopefully people have watched it uh, listening to this, but if you haven't, it, it kind of starts out as it's an adaptation of this book, The Orchid Thief. And we very quickly, like in the setup of the film, discover that the movie at first, at least, is is more about Charlie Kaufman, like trying to write this movie that we're now watching. It's Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman, his fictional twin brother, both played by Nicolas Cage. And mm-hmm. so it it very much starts out in this like space of writer's block that I think is is pretty relatable probably to anybody who's like written or tried to write. I mean, maybe there are those people out there who just sit down yeah. and it flows naturally. But most of the people I know who try to write. I think anyone who's done any kind of work can relate to it at some <laughs> yes. point. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in talking about that. It's also interesting because, like you said, it was kind of on the forefront a little bit in terms of kind of breaking down some of these things. And I think that's true. Like by today's standards, Mm -hmm. you know, it's still a clever, interesting film, but I think we're much more used to in 2022, like meta narratives, like, you know, things that like break the fourth wall in weird ways or, you know, kind of include the author or the creator like in the narrative itself but this was like two decades ago in 2002 and Mm -hmm. so it's placed at an interesting time where this kind of like very kind of almost postmodern sort of deconstruction Mm -hmm. of story would have been would have been relatively fresh and yeah I I came at this like you kind of from having seen some of other Kaufman's other stuff so I think I knew what to expect a little bit there's definitely some parts of it that feel dated now especially for me towards the end it's kind of starts to lose me a little bit it's not so much the fault of the movie but I think it's rather the if anything it's the an effect of the success of the movie that it's kind of set into motion this style of writing or filmmaking that's evolved over the years and in some ways become more eloquent I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it but I think it has progressed, as you said, from two decades ago to where we are now, to the point where some parts of this don't feel as interesting anymore. But at the same time, they're still like they were necessary to get to where we are today. So in that sense, you can still it's it's fun to go back and see where it sort of started. Yeah. Where should we start on this? This is a hard, maybe hard nut to crack because there's a lot of things happening. Yeah, there's a lot of layers also. Because I I didn't realize when I saw it, this movie, the first time that it actually was, I thought it was just a story, but I realized that it was actually a real life story of Charlie Kaufman trying to write that adaptation. Like he didn't set out to write this movie. He set out to write the movie that the character in this movie is trying to write. And he had that actual writer's block and then he 
kind of decided, okay, I'm going to make a meta movie about that. So that's what I was talking about with the layers upon layers of meta-ness that's kind of incorporated into this, which makes it interesting, but also, yeah, a bit complicated as to how do we find our entry point (laughs) into this. Yes. Everyone in the movie is like a real person, except for Donald Kaufman, like Susan Orlean, the author of the book is real. They're not played by themselves. They're played by, you know, like Susan Orlean is played by Meryl Streep. But even Mm -hmm. the like film producers that he talks to and the agent and like Brian McKee shows up as a character, which is a pretty funny. It's Robert McKee, right? Oh, Robert McKee, yeah. yep. Um, I have the book sitting uh, on the shelf right behind me. <laughs> <laughs> shows up as a character, and that's an interesting aspect of this film because mm-hmm. I was watching some interviews and videos about it this afternoon before we recorded. There's some funny stories from, like, Susan Orlean about, like, finding out about the adaptation because the reality of the situation was very similar to what you see in, in the movie, like you said. Mm-hmm. Like, Charlie Kaufman was hired to adapt this novel, and then he just, like, couldn't do it so he started writing this this movie about how he couldn't do it literally the Susan Orlean had no idea eventually Kaufman just like turned this script into his like agents and they were kind of like you know this isn't really what we were going for but we're going to try to make it anyway and so they they then went and like pitched it to Susan who at first was like no I'm not going to do this this is ridiculous but then eventually she agreed to it and ended up like kind of coming around to it and liking the movie, which I think is kind of interesting and amazing. And then also uh, Robert McKee, like they came to Robert McKee, like completely out of the blue and were like, hey, you know, this guy, Charlie Kaufman, who was less known when like this was one of his earlier films. So Mm -hmm. he had already made like... Being John Malkovich? Being John Malkovich at this point, but he wasn't like as big as I think he is now. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, hey, this guy, Charlie Kaufman, wrote you into his screenplay, like... Can we quote your book? Can we, you know, are you, will you be okay with appearing in the film? And apparently it took some, it took like, they had to talk him into it, but Mm -hmm. everybody who's in the movie, like eventually, I guess, agreed to be in it. Maybe some context for those who don't know, Robert McKee is the author of a book. His most famous book is called Story. And it's this kind of this staple within the writing industry that a lot of people keep revisiting for story structure and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's a central theme of the movie as Charlie Kaufman is the character in the movie is struggling to write this film. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is like holding him back and like causing all this writer's block is like he doesn't want to turn it into this Hollywood thing. He like he wants to write something that's like really true and authentic and like Mm -hmm. all these things. And then he has this twin brother, Donald, who's like writing a different screenplay and he's like all into, you know, Robert McKee and he's like, oh, you, you know, you need the inciting incident and all these things. And he's following this, you know, more traditional by the book story plot and and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so there's this tension between those two things and, and the way it plays out across the film is, is very interesting. But I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. like, what do you think this movie's relationship to like that kind of like model for storytelling because in a sense it's it feels like it's trying to critique approaching story writing in that way but i i know at least some people think like also that this this movie follows the beats of books like story mm-hmm. it puts it in this interesting space where it's like yeah. both critiquing it and following the pattern so I, I was curious what your thoughts on that were for me i think the movie itself does end up doing what it tries not to do or tries to avoid which I guess we'll get into that later but that's where some of my issues come in but yeah overall I think the question I've talked about it a lot in my own videos of why we insist on telling stories in these structured ways whereas our lives our actual real lives do not have a lot of those same elements like we obviously we have adventures we have transformations in our own life but we rarely have like these clear resolutions and we it's kind of like i think one of the philosophers uh, the existential philosophers commented on it i think it was kierkegaard who said like we live life forwards but we understand it backwards so when you tell a story about your own life you're inevitably telling it in some form of hindsight but of course your life is never truly over so you never have that like complete vantage point in that sense all the kind of resolutions that we have in our own lives they're 
temporary at best, unless you know we pass away and maybe someone else tells us our story. But even then, you you never know how you're gonna fit into history or be replaced or recontextualized by something else that happens or some you know, you know this. And I think that's maybe why we are so drawn to more structure in stories because we do want the catharsis of some kind of resolvement or uh, resolution in a way that we cannot find in our own lives. And so in that sense, I guess it makes some sense that we structure our stories in that way. There's a whole discussion, of course, about why that relation is there, because you can also argue that stories don't necessarily reflect like they, that they are not necessarily direct reflections of our own lives and they should, that they're not yeah. meant to be, that they can be more like sociological or pedagogical. I'm not sure how to say it in English. <laughs> pedagogical is how you would say it, but I'm Yeah, I'm as a sort of sure. child raising or like general development tool. Right, yeah. There's different functions that's, that stories can serve that don't necessarily need them to have the same structure that we find or don't find in our real lives. But that being said, I can imagine that when we want to have a stronger or a more honest reflection of our own lives and that we don't want the cliches or the resolution or the definitiveness that we, or at least that screenwriters or storytellers can run into issues when these conventions are still expected of them. The best way to address that, I think, is from a storytelling perspective is just to kind of do away with structure and hope for the best. Like we've recently done a podcast on unconventional cinema. I think that's, in my personal opinion, like the best way to go about it. To just like, you want to yeah. do away with the rules, like then just do away with the rules. Don't make a movie complaining about them and then, <laughs> the rules, yeah. <laughs> and then adhering to them anyways. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that's what, what Charlie Kaufman got better at later in his career where, where he's not just deconstructing, but also, or he's still deconstructing a lot of things, but he's also kind of rearranging or reconstructing things in his own way or in his own vision. Synecdoche, New York, I think is probably my favorite of his um, as a film that more indirectly comments on some storytelling expectations, but still subverts them in a way that feels fresh and really creates something different. But yeah, for adaptation, I think it's still, it feels like Charlie Kaufman was still in his sort of infancy as a screenwriter, like, but maybe that's, that's also at the time where the, maybe the, the filmmaking culture was at. And so, yeah. yeah, that's in short, my thoughts on that, I think. Yeah, it's definitely interesting viewing this in the context of seeing, you know, Kaufman movies like Schenectady or his most recent, I'm thinking of ending things where it's mm -hmm. like, you know, the kind of story structure that he's struggling with in this is just completely out the window in like in those, especially like, you know, something like I'm thinking of ending things where it's just, you know, pretty out there. And I think like, in my opinion, a lot of that stuff works like, you know, it's still mm -hmm. interesting. You can tell stories with that. I mean, we just talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which in a lot of oh, ways yeah, like, yeah. doesn't follow the kind of beats that we're that we're talking about or that like, you know, someone like McKee would would lay out. So, yeah, I think it's it's totally possible. And I think that's kind of a movement in general, like away from those more traditional beats and structure because of that. We've also talked about how sometimes it can feel like really good when like with Top Gun Maverick or, some, yeah. or something, somebody <laughs> just goes and like, is like, no, I'm going to do it by the books. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes that, that can still be like very yeah, satisfying yeah. in a certain way. There's no one single way to do movies well. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of the pathology comes not from like, not from the idea of like, here's a formula that you can use that will provide catharsis mm -hmm. or will be engaging. It's like, you know, yeah, like those, a lot of those things work if you do them, but like you can also not do them. And I think it's healthier to just move out of this space of like feeling like it needs to be one or the other. Like you must deconstruct, mm -hmm. you know, you must deconstruct narrative for a movie to be worthwhile or interesting, or, you know, you have to follow these beats for it to be good or or whatever. Ironically, I think Kaufman's kind of a, a writer who his career has kind of become emblematic of sort of a movement away from that. So it's interesting to see the tension of that in this movie, 
literally, literally, like he goes to the screenwriting, you know, seminar and he's like, what if he's asking the very, you know, the very thing that we're talking about, which is like, maybe some of these story structures, I don't want to say bad or unhealthy, but like they can provide us a insufficient at reflecting reality. Yes. Yeah. 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 And he has an argument with McKee where McKee is like, no, Mm -hmm. you know, like there, there is conflict in reality. And he's like, you know, somebody's always dying or being born or yada, yada. But like, I think that's McKee almost kind of falling into the exact kind of trap that you're describing in saying like, we like quoting Kierkegaard and saying we we experience our Mm -hmm. life, you know, from the future, looking into the past in that like, yes, those things are happening in real life all the time, but those things aren't the majority of what we experience yep. throughout our real life. Like those big cataclysmic moments are maybe like one few hours or a day or, you know, a year of our life. And we spend the most of the rest of the time probably like sitting at the keyboard, you know, a little bit more in the space that this movie starts out in, which is like, you know, trying to write, but thinking that yeah. I'm hungry and, you know, want to get a croissant and <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking one last note on the kind of context that the movie exists in. I do think it's, at first I was thinking like my issue with adaptation and just movies that only seem to deconstruct without doing anything else. They kind of feels like you remember in The Prestige where you have Michael Caine's character explaining like the whole setup of a trick and then there's I think the third act is where you make something disappear, but then you've shown like the audience something interesting, but it's not like that. That's not the end of the trick. Like you have to make it come back. There needs to be the prestige. And right. that to me is kind of what I feel is missing here. Like it's deconstructing a way of movie making without offering a different one. Because as we said already, like at the end, it does kind of fall into its own conventions that it wanted to escape from. Yeah. But while that would be like my issue with the movie on its own, like I do appreciate in the wider context of filmmaking that maybe these kind of movies do help us to appreciate like the more unconventional ones that they make like the transition between Top Gun Maverick and Voyage of Time or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A little less jarring when there's like an in cinema conversation about how cinema works and it helps the audience to understand that and also helps them to maybe appreciate when it's done in a different way or when the rules aren't followed. I don't want to jump to the end too soon, but Mm -hmm. maybe we should just go ahead and and talk about that because it fits into this part of the discussion, I think. So I guess spoilers if you haven't seen it, you know, although in 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 a sense, this is a movie that's so weird that like, having it spoiled i don't think is that crazy but yeah. there's there's kind of a twist at the end so if you haven't seen it you might want to watch it first but i think that that shift that happens is like eventually kaufman is so fed up with or down on his attempts at writing this that he does kind of he goes to donald who's had success now as like a conventional screenwriter yeah. and he gets donald's help and donald comes in and is like okay yeah like we can make this more exciting you know he goes he talks to Robert McKee and McKee is like give it a good ending and so there's a sense in which it's like okay you know here's the direction the movie goes Donald starts helping with the writing and then immediately like it gets there's more espionage they're like spying on Susan Mm -hmm. Orlean and like you know there's like all of a sudden there's drugs and sex and like a car chase and like all these (laughs) other things are happening and that's where it gets weird for me because that's kind of the point in the movie where I start to get kind of bored, which is something that I keep going back and forth in my head on. I can't tell if that's like if that's intentional or not. Yeah, because if it is, it's kind of a big move to mm-hmm. make just to like level a critique essentially at convention, which is like Kaufman going like, OK, you know, you want yeah. conventional. Now I'll start to give you conventional. But then also that's where the movie kind of falls apart. Yeah. I'd prefer it if that weren't the case. I think that's personally, I think that's one of the weakest yes. ways to to convey a message. Like it's bad on purpose. Right. Yes. Yeah. Like I think it would have been a more interesting movie if that ending had actually been mm-hmm. very exciting and interesting. If yeah. it had 
somehow worked more. I think then all of a sudden you'd have this like conflict of like, oh, like, yes, you know, but I'm I'm interested in that. Yeah. There's even that moment where somewhere in the middle where the main character, what's his name again? Uh, or it's Charlie Kaufman, of course. He played right, yeah. Nicholas Cage is playing <laughs> Charlie Kaufman. But he's talking to Robert McKee and he tells him, don't do a deus ex machina, which is this, right. for, if you don't know, this storytelling device where suddenly something comes out of nowhere to resolve a conflict. And that's also what literally happens at the end when Charlie is being chased by this bad guy who then has him like in his sights, he has a gun and a crocodile comes up or an alligator from out of the swamp that they're in and eats the bad guy and then right, yes. resolves that situation. So that's again, yeah. like he's doing exactly what he was supposed to not do. And yeah, you, you can wonder to what extent that was intentional. Was that supposed to be a wink as to like look is this this is what you wanted see how boring this is <laughs> right <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean if that's what he's doing i guess uh props like for executing it well because it works and i'm bored but he, like... he did think his career was over when he handed in the script <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so he was pretty willing to just take a swing mm -hmm. which i do love i mean this movie is out there it's definitely doing something weird it's kind of a mess in in a sense. Like I was thinking about this and I was trying to, um, you know, see if I could put a finger on what some of the other themes are that are going on here besides this, all the stuff that's like mm -hmm. right on the surface about like story structure and writing. And because there's also themes about sort of, you know, there's the book itself and this, you know, what is essentially a subplot of the movie, but is what originally like the story that he's mm -hmm. trying to adapt, which is. Susan writing this book about LaRoche, this guy who's like poaching these orchids and, you know, kind of his obsession with these flowers and then her obsession with him and being interested in him, but also in the idea of like being obsessed. And mm -hmm. so there's interesting stuff there. And then there's also like adaptation as like a double meaning because it talks about like Darwinian adaptation related to the flowers and mm -hmm. but I can't really sort any of that out into yeah. anything that feels coherent. I don't know if you, how you felt about that. Yeah, I think that's an issue with these kinds of movies where the two layers don't necessarily connect. I think a similar movie would be uh, Seven Psychopaths. I'm not sure if you've seen it. I haven't but seen the, that one, The no. follow-up to uh, In Bruges. I'm forgetting the director's name right now, but also had Colin Farrell. Martin uh, McDonough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was also this Seven Psychopaths, the story about Colin Farrell's character who's trying to write a book about seven psychopaths. And then he kind of finds inspiration in the real world where he finds real characters that fit into it. And that also creates this story arc of its own with the meta textual element but also there it's hard to connect the two the layers of storytelling that are going on but going back to adaptation there's something i did notice more on this watch where i tried to focus more as you did on what was going on outside of the deconstructive elements and one thing i was particularly interested in was the character that the original book was written about and the way he had this passion but he also had different passions in the in the past which he just got bored with and then suddenly let go seemingly out of the blue and that's what susan the author that's of the book is trying to grasp like how can you be this intensively passionate about something and then just decide not to be anymore like is can you yeah. let go of passions like that? Isn't there some element that lingers? Or I guess that feeds into like the larger question of how passion works, how does it motivate us, and how can we relate ourselves to it? Which I guess is somewhat there in the way Charlie is trying to exercise his passion while also at the same time struggling to actually get it done. It's not a perfect right. fit, but yeah. Right, yeah. It does feel like at a certain point he kind of like gives up. Mm -hmm. And then we also have a parallel with Susan like kind of losing interest in like they go and they find the flower and she's like, it's just a flower. And then like, mm -hmm. and then eventually she kind of gets fed up with like LaRoche himself and starts to lose that obsession. So there is, yeah, I think there's some connection there. But yeah, you're right. It's not, it doesn't, 
it feels almost like I'm reaching describing that. So it might be all very uh, intentional in there, but I don't feel that intuitively like as I'm mm -hmm. watching it. It's more like thinking about it in hindsight and trying to put those pieces together. It doesn't lead to me like feeling anything while I'm watching the movie mm -hmm. about those themes, yeah. uh, which I think is what it would need for it to like. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, like just now I'm realizing this, there is an interesting parallel, I think, between Donald and Charlie and Susan and LaRoche. Was his LaRoche, character name? Yeah. Uh, Chris Cooper, uh, who played it. LaRoche is someone who kind of jumps from passion to passion and he's just in it and he doesn't yeah. really think about what he's doing. And that's the same with Donald's character, who's just writing these ridiculous stories that he's kind of fascinated by these twists like uh, there's this moment where he describes that his story will have like a policeman and a robber and then someone else and then they turn out to be the same person at the end and then charlie has to point out that it doesn't make any sense <laughs> right yeah. you know he's like <laughs> these characters exist in different spaces how can they be the same person in the end and you can see like donald hasn't thought it through he's just following that passion and going with whatever excites him. And then in that effort that you have both Charlie and Susan's characters who kind of look up to them just being in that passion without overanalyzing it. And they are maybe building it up to be something more like yeah. they are the ones who build expectations about what it is like to have that kind of passion, even though it may not necessarily be what they think or what they imagine. Like, uh, as you said, Susan fi eventually finds the rare flower or orchid that the whole uh, his whole passion was about, and it was just a flower. And in the same way, maybe Charlie, who he's actually seen on the set of John Malkovich at the beginning, like maybe that's yes the, the moment that he became successful, and it still didn't feel like true success or true passion. He's still sitting in front of his typewriter, having writer's block, not knowing what to write next and still stuck in that stream of conscious that us normies have as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. he's, he's not elevated himself to the big screenwriter status in the way that he may have imagined that life would have been like. So in that sense, there may be some connections there between the kind of metaphorical story then and the more meta one. But yeah, that's, as you said, I it's not something that's clearly communicated in the film itself, right. it, as you're watching it, it's more of a hindsight realization, I guess. Have you had this this kind of writer's block that's that's kind of <laughs> depicted in this? Uh, oh yeah, this definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty bad sometimes. <laughs> the thing is, it's it's the worst when you're trying to actually do something well. Like when it comes to my own videos, the ones that I felt were the most important ones, they are the ones that I experienced the most blockage i guess yeah and then it's exactly the same kind of uh, the, the stream of consciousness um which i think that there's a there's a bit on the use of narration in in the movie it says that robert mckee disapproves of it and that you basically shouldn't use it apparently the real one doesn't think that he only argues that it has to contribute something that isn't or cannot be communicated visually. And I do think in that sense, the, the, the narration really does add something to this movie by giving this, it's really communicating these inner insecurities in a way that, that you cannot quite do in a non-verbal way. Just because it's, it, it's, it's really the speed of it. The, the whole opening montage or mon, um, opening monologue, scene is yeah. monologue. That's the word I was looking for. It's basically Charlie Kaufman thinking random thoughts at right. and jumping around in these wildly different directions in all in the span of like two minutes or something and and yeah that that kind of distractive i don't even know how to call it like it, it's a stream of consciousness and that's yeah. i guess literally what it is but the, the way your mind can wander from a to b and then all the way to x or y and back again and it, it, it's kind of fascinating and really annoying when you're trying to focus but uh, but yeah that, that's something that the movie does communicate really well in my opinion yeah i'm not sure that i've seen another another film that like depicts that kind of like rumination or yeah the the distracted yeah. i think it's because it's so unfiltered yeah if you compare it yeah. to 
Terrence Malick, for example, who also does these inner monologues, but they are more like articulated existential questions yeah. that we mostly yeah. feel unconsciously. And Charlie Kaufman is just, this is a thought, this is a thought. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's much more in the moment. I imagine maybe there's people out there who haven't experienced stuff like that, but I think it's probably a pretty universal mm -hmm. experience, at least at certain times. You know, I've definitely had those moments where like, you're trying to do something or you're trying to think about something or you're, you're trying to sit down and, and it's just like, your brain won't shut up and it's about the most inane stuff you can imagine. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like anytime you try to force yourself into like doing something, I think this kind of thing can come up, but there's something specific about writing that, that does it for me because it, it's like mm -hmm. it's, you're having to focus your brain in a way of like concerted effort towards organizing your thoughts and like, you know, composing something and your brain will just come up with all kinds of reasons that you shouldn't be doing that work, mm -hmm. including like other kinds of work that you could do instead, like learning Chinese or, <laughs> you know, whatever, like you, know, you list a million, a million different things. Do you also go in the, in the, in the bargaining mode then where it, yes, that's, what, that's yeah. what happens a little bit later where he's going like, I'm going to, I should get some coffee to help me think better. And no, I should write yeah. first and then reward myself with coffee and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's Michael from, Lessons from the Screenplay has a great video that he made about this that is mm -hmm. essentially like an adaptation of adaptation where he's trying to write a video about adaptation and it and he has writer's block <laughs> and he's trying to and I watched it today and I think I'd watched it before but watching it again it was very much resonating with me because part of the struggle of writing stuff sometimes that I think like creates the kind of anxiety or almost like it's not just writer's block that like Charlie Kaufman, the mm -hmm. character, and presumably the real Charlie Kaufman was experiencing writing this. It's not like just writer's block. There's also some kind of like imposter syndrome insecurity that fuels a lot of it where it's just like you said, relating it to this vision of like, I should be passionate about this. I should be able to do it well. It should mm -hmm. like kind of flow out of me there. We like sometimes it's easy to hold on to this idea of like what it should feel like to write something that is good and if it doesn't feel that way it's it can be really hard to like start or mm -hmm. keep working on something and that's something i've i've definitely encountered and i have i've had those moments where i've been like you're sweating out every line of a script or something and the disconnect between feeling like ugh this doesn't feel good i don't really mm -hmm. like it and it was like tortured to like drag it out of myself and then you put yeah. it up on the internet and somebody's like hey, you know, this was really great or something. And the disconnect between what like it felt like to produce that and how it's perceived can be great sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think we have this tendency when we see other work that we think is good, we don't imagine the writer being like, "Ugh, you know, I hate this <laughs> or like having a really hard time creating it. We just think like, oh, it just came out of them like fully formed. And so that's what it should mm -hmm. be like when I write something good, but that that really doesn't end up being the reality the vast majority of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the mistake there is believing that the struggle to get something out of your head and into the world, the obstacles you encounter are a sign of incompetency or that whatever yes. is inside is not worth getting out. I've, I'm not sure if you have it this too, but I've had the same experience as you where I feel I felt really, or not, not really bad, but like quite bad about a video that I made. I felt it wasn't, it was such a struggle, every every line of it. And then I barely got it out and it was received pretty well. And I thought like, okay, well, fine. But then I, right. like, I've had that happen with like maybe two or three years ago. And when I revisit some of those videos now, like when I come back to them with like at least like a year or a good amount of time distance from it. And then I can see that, okay, it is actually pretty good. And I can't even remember yeah. like how I struggled to get this done. So right. in this way, or it almost becomes hard to relate back to how my mindset was in that moment of creation when, when it looks like it's almost starting to look effortless to me, even though I was the one who made it right. yeah, and who did it. so definitely not effortlessly. 
<laughs> yeah, I can definitely relate to that as well. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's um, what's the name of that book? I think it's called the the War of Art, which was this oh, yes. war play of the Art of War. Um, yeah, which is really dives into or tries to deconstruct this idea that creativity is something that flows out of you and that talent just comes from within and just blossoms without effort and that uh, making art and producing stuff and being creative it's actually work and it takes discipline and it, it it's only logical that you encounter walls and obstacles and challenges and whatnot and that actually the most resistance comes from your probably mistaken belief that that it should be easier or that it's not good enough to create if it doesn't come out easily so yeah that's i think what that book was about yeah i value this movie if nothing else just for like having a depiction of that that struggle that feels like mm -hmm. kind of you know maybe it's a little over the top in some places but like mm -hmm. but it feels honest and like straightforward in a certain way and it's like putting that struggle into a film itself is a good message mm -hmm. for like writers and aspiring writers or just creative people in general who want to do stuff that yeah. you know it doesn't yeah it doesn't have to feel easy it it will feel hard at a lot of times and that's part of the process there's techniques that you can use to like get past that some of the time but to a certain extent you just kind of have to accept that struggle as a part of it mm -hmm. uh, from time to time or you know just go follow the the beats of you know, grab yourself a, a screenwriting book or whatever and follow the formula. Mm -hmm. and it, it'll just come <laughs> easy. <laughs> I think even then it's not as... No, it's it's not that simple. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that that scene alone with Nicolas Cage sitting in front of the typewriter contemplating getting coffee and a muffin or punishing slash rewarding himself was such a relief for so many people who yeah. had these false expectations or ideas about what professional screenwriting looks like and that it's not always just you being perfectly in tune with your own creativity and creating effortlessly and that's uh, yeah i think that that in itself makes this movie uh worth watching but yeah i don't have official statistics but i, I want to say like the writing i think falls prey to this especially like there's it's a, even the most productive writers generally will not write for more than a few hours a, a day. It's incredibly rare to be like a writer who just logs real long hours writing. It's it's a very creatively laborious task. And yeah. so like, especially if you're trying to apply the standards of like other types of work to to writing, you can very easily fall into this trap of being like, I'm a fraud. I'm not good at it because, you know, I had to toil just to get out like these few pages mm -hmm. from everybody I know who writes that's generally that's generally just kind of how it goes my, my writing process is horribly slow especially <laughs> compared to like I can easily edit like eight hours straight or even longer if I want to only taking breaks just to like rest my body physically or yeah. to avoid carpal tunnel syndrome but when I'm writing like after Sometimes even after just one hour or two hours, maybe then I'm just I'm just burned out, and I, <laughs> right. I I've started to feel it instinctively when I'm I'm kind of writing and writing, and then I'm kind of stumbling over this line, and then I'm going back a bit, and then well, maybe I should change that up, and then I feel like I'm getting stuck on this one little bit, and then I'm trying to push through, but then every new line takes longer and longer, and so at some point I just throw in the towel and feel like uh, okay i'm it's time to do something else now yeah <laughs> i was gonna say it's it's a deceptively shallow movie almost in a way that it feels like there's a lot to talk about but it's pretty easy to cover as well yeah i think the crux of that kind of lies in what we talked about earlier where it feels like there's a little more going on here than just like the the struggle mm -hmm. to write the, the screenplay and ad, adapt the book and like that's depicted in like a funny you know interesting way mm -hmm. i think like that as a story for the film is pretty interesting and i'm entertained by it but then like the as an actual adaptation of the orchid thief 
like the book that it's adapting. Mm -hmm. I haven't read that book, but I think it's it's hard to see those those themes. They don't, you know, they're there. You can maybe point to them a little bit, but it, it's hard to really feel what the movie is trying to say or if it has a point mm -hmm. or if there's much going on underneath that. You know, I think it's one of those movies that kind of invites a certain amount of like picking apart and trying to puzzle it out. But like, you know, that can be fun. But a lot of times I'm more interested in like what the movie presents as I'm watching it that I don't have to like, mm -hmm. you know, put all the pieces together. I think one interesting thing that would make me interested to read the book in comparison to this in that interview I was listening to with Susan Orlean, the writer, where she was talking about the story of finding out you know, what the screenplay was really about and then agreeing to allow, you know, herself to be in it and like all these things. Well, she she said that she thought that Charlie Kaufman kind of found some subtext of the book of like the struggle that she had writing the book that she didn't put in there, but that she had and brought that like to the surface in this, which I think is interesting. That's like, that's an, uh, definitely an interesting piece of insight to understanding like, this in relationship to the material that Kaufman was adapting. But like, I, I don't know how much of, like, I don't think I would pick up on that without, yeah. you know, uh, just, just from watching it. Especially with the, the turn, the ending takes yes. in regards to her character arc and right. the whole reality of yeah. what didn't happen. Yeah. It lays a lot out there in an interesting way, but I don't think, yeah. I don't think ultimately for me, it quite, coalesces which may have been the point but then that leads to kind of a, a little bit of a disappointing movie so yeah for me that that's the worst kind of meta awareness where it's if you're calling out the crime but then still do the <laughs> right. crime that's that's not a doesn't give you a free pass <laughs> right yes <laughs> the the worst part is it's working up until then so the whole like yeah. it's a good movie prior to the point where I think he he's like, oh, I'm going to make it I'm going to make it Hollywood. And so like mm -hmm. the irony of that is that his whole struggle against that is pointless because the the reason he turns to that is because he feels like he's not making something good. Mm -hmm. But in reality, like to me, what comes before that moment is much better. And so you could have just wrote the weird, wacky version mm -hmm. <laughs> and it would have been just as good as, as this version, mm -hmm. I think. So Yeah. I'm just realizing now just how far it goes towards the ending in terms of embracing bad storytelling rules in a way. <laughs> right. I already mentioned the Deus Ex Machina, which was specifically mentioned as a some as a thing to avoid and then it does it at the end but and i also said that i like the narration because it does add something that otherwise wouldn't be communicated visually but the at the end there's also a narration but there it does pretty much directly narrate what is going on visually as well we have charlie kaufman's driving off into the sunset knowing that his scream, he has found the angle for his screenplay. Everything's going to be all right. And that's also what he's narrating on that meta level. But right. I guess it adds the meta-ness of real life Charlie knowing what this movie is and Charlie in the movie knowing what this movie is. In terms of the story itself, that it does feel like there it does explain directly what we also see without yeah. the narration. Yeah. Ultimately, I would say, you know, I think Spike Jones is, is a good director. Kaufman is... A oh good, yeah, definitely. A good writer. This cast is great. Mm -hmm. So this is a fun movie. I would even recommend it to people, especially if you're interested mm -hmm. at all in like screenwriting. But like ultimately it doesn't emotionally connect with me, I think is like yeah. is why and the weird turn that it takes that makes me feel bored instead of excited. Yeah. I think is is where it ultimately falls a little flat for me. But maybe we'll have to explore some of the other Kaufman in the future mm -hmm. that I think lands a little better. How, how would you say he has evolved over over the years and what like what has changed since adaptation in terms of how he approaches stories and the, the kind of subversive meta-ness that we've been yeah. talking about? If he felt like his career was over when he was handling this movie, <laughs> he really was struggling with like the conflict that's in this film of like, can I write this weird, you mm -hmm. know, stuff the way I want to write it or do I have to try to make it more conventional? And then... 
in a sense, the success of this movie becomes his answer, which is like, no, you can do something really strange and it'll be fine. And then I think you see that play out then a little bit over the rest of his career where, you know, he does mm -hmm. stuff he's made since this has just become even stranger. I mean, as meta and weird as this movie is, it's fairly easy to wrap your head around compared to something like Synecdoche, New York, or, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm thinking of ending things. So I think he got his answer from this movie and I hope yeah. he did, which is like, oh yeah, like I'm sure it's still hard and difficult and there's writer's mm -hmm. block or whatever, but hopefully he's let go of that like turmoil yeah. of like, you know, do I need to make it conventional? I wonder also to what extent him becoming a director as well, aside from being a screenwriter, how that affected him. Because obviously as a director, you have more control over what the eventual product or the movie looks like. But yeah, that might be a, a question for a different day. But uh, if you look at uh, Synecdoche, New York, for example, there's some. There's definitely a very different directorial touch to it, I think, compared to something like Adaptation or being John Malkovich, which I personally find much more interesting. It does feel like he is integrating his perception or his views or ideas on storytelling into the movie, into other aspects of the movie instead of just the screenplay. Yeah, I yeah. think Synecdoche, New York, there's a lot of stuff going on also with just the way shots work from in composition with each other, there's a lot of editing, madness going on or subversion. There's a lot going on with the set design, with the way the actors are cast and recast. Synecdoche, New York is kind of known for having different actors play the same roles or then it's, there's a sort of play within a play thing going on yeah. there that uh, becomes really surreal towards the end. But uh, yeah, we might have to do a separate uh, episode on that uh, someday. Yeah, yeah, I'd love I, I would definitely love to um, explore more of his work because I'm a fan. I think he's one of the few people who he's the rare screenwriter who kind of carved out a space for himself as a known mm -hmm. screenwriter. You know, he kind of was an auteur like it would be a Charlie Kaufman movie almost more than it was a Spike Jones movie or whatever. Yeah, you don't see that a lot. Yeah, um, that's rare. It may be like Sorkin is like the only other person I can mm, think, at least yeah. contemporary, that that's the case with. But I think like this is something that we talked about a little bit with like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that I think he leans into a little bit more that it kind of touches on what you're describing, which is that you can deconstruct all of these elements of like conventional narrative or narrative itself. But like if you still hold on to the idea of like storytelling cinematically within the form like you know you're you're conveying an interesting story or a mood or a feeling that's like entertaining that like still draws on something that we mm -hmm. feel like it's you can get away with a little bit more in terms of breaking convention if you know how to like i'm going to be en entertaining or i know how to evoke emotion just through like the way i construct a scene or the way i you know, score this or edit this or whatever. Uh, and that's something that like Tarantino does in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's like, you can not hit the story beats if you know that like, if I get this actor to do this and we shoot it this way and we, we bring the music up like this, like you're going to feel something. That's a big difference for me between like adaptation and some of this later work where it's like, I have no idea what's going on. And like, I'm thinking of ending things, but like, I mm -hmm. recognize the feelings that it's trying to evoke in me. And so in a sense, it's deconstructing narrative. It's deconstructing all these other things. It's not like completely deconstructing the idea of like using a story to like evoke something from the audience. It's not like down on the idea of just like storytelling completely. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important like distinction to make. Yeah, And that's maybe what you were talking about earlier with like you make it disappear and then you have to make something else come back yeah like if you can make story structure disappear and then you can still make me feel like the stuff that a normal story would have made me feel that's a cool trick and yeah. i think he's he's closer to pulling that off like in in his later work yeah i uh, fully agree yeah that's that's definitely if you i think that it's exactly as you said if you can 
show that the rules don't matter and still invoke a feeling or an emotion or just a general vibe. And that's when you've, to me at least, proven that the rules don't matter. But yeah, if you're only like commenting on them and then still adhering to them anyways at the end, that's not as convincing. But yeah, yeah. to just uh, without sounding too critical, like I'm, I'm a big fan of Charlie Kaufman's Mike Jones as well. I also love her, for example, a lot. I even like Three Kings a lot. That was one of my uh, childhood go-to movies that I really liked. And yeah, I definitely agree. I think uh, this was an early, early-ish movie for Charlie Kaufman in terms of where he was at as a filmmaker or as a storyteller. I also liked the movie as a sort of token of where film in general was at at the time in the yeah. early 2000s. And I think it was a necessary stepping stone to get some of the more interesting stories that we have today, or at least the ones that we find interesting now, maybe if another 20 years pass, I will look back at some of those same stories that seem subversive now, but maybe by then we'll be in a totally different place again. So, but that's the beauty of it. You know, you yeah. need these people who kind of push against the norms and the, the rules and expand the our conception of what movies can be and what can what stories can do and like what parts of our reality they can or should maybe even reflect and not just limit ourselves as uh, Robert McKee the fictional one in the, right. in the movie said <laughs> like there's only these exciting parts of your real life that you should turn into story all the rest is not story worthy and I think there's been plenty of movies that have proven otherwise and that is definitely in part thanks to adaptation great i think that's a that's a great note to end on and uh maybe we'll explore some of the other kaufman movies or even some of the other kaufman and spike jones collabs in in the future yeah that'd be cool thank you all for listening if you enjoyed this show please be sure to check out our creator-owned streaming service nebula where you can listen to all of our episodes a week early and ad free but where you also get access to a monthly bonus episode so far our bonus episodes discuss 1917 2001 a space odyssey doctor strange and the multiverse of madness and drive and we have more coming each month the best way to get access to nebula is by signing up for curiosity stream which comes with a free nebula subscription to learn more about that, just follow the link in the show notes below and we'll talk to you next time.